I killed Dietrichson. Me, Walter Neff, insurance agent, 35 years old, unmarried, no visible scars. Until a while ago, that is. Yeah, I killed him. I killed him for money and for a woman. It all began last May. I was thinking about that dame upstairs and the way she had looked at me. And I wanted to see her again, close, without that silly staircase between us. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? I can't stand it anymore. What if they do hang me? They're not going to hang you, baby. It's better than going on this way. They're not going to hang you. Because you're going to do it and I'm going to help you. Yes, from the moment they met, it was murder. But always behind them with his devilish hunches and his brilliant brain was Keyes. The murder's never perfect. Always comes apart sooner or later. And where two people are concerned, it's usually sooner. Could they get away from him and his relentless pursuit? And could they get away with murder? You don't know Keyes. Once he gets his teeth into something, he never lets go. He'll investigate you. He'll have you shattered. He'll watch you every minute from now on. You afraid, baby? Yes, I'm afraid. But not of Keyes. I'm afraid of us. I'd like to move in on her right now, tonight. If it wasn't for Norton and his strike pants ideas about company policy, I'd have the cops after her so quick it'd make a head spin. Now, we know the Dietrichson dame is in it, and uh, somebody else. Only I haven't got a single thing to go on, Keyes. He'll show. He's got to show. Sometime, somewhere, they've got to meet. Welcome to Movie Umpers. My name is Bob Sham. I'm Angela. The sounds you hear may be dogs, and it is time for a whole new theme. That's right. Here on this Friday, on the 1st of March, I believe that's how it works out, we are starting a new theme. We leave behind the women in crisis. I'm glad. I I, I caught enough women losing their fucking minds. We watched some good movies, but I'm glad to move on. I'm glad also, but I really have enjoyed this month a lot. You mean last month? Now it's a new month. Well, this past, this past month. This month is celebratory because not only are we watching some of the best movies ever made. It's a heavy hitters month, no doubt. But it's also my birthday month. It is your birthday month. And we are talking about uh, one of our favorite things is classic film noir. Yes. The old back in the days. Under the shadow of the Hayes Code. And we'll talk more about that. Hayes Code is always looming over these movies. But we're talking today about a, a one that is a classic that kind of set the tone for a lot of movies that came after it. It's indicative of a bunch of writers, pulp magazines and stuff that came before it. Will you, for maybe our younger listeners, since it's the start of this month... <laughs> Yeah, the, uh, talk about the what the Hayes Code yeah. is. The Hayes Code was just this very Catholic enforced code. It was near the end of the 30s in which they applied it, mid to late 30s, in which that set a standard that Hollywood, there were different rules, different states had different rules, but to kind of streamline it and to ensure that, you know, movies could be shown throughout. It kind of all blanketed under this Hayes Code thing. So there were certain things you couldn't show, 
like drug use or infidelity. You'll notice in a lot of these movies, if they happen to be cheating on each other, they maybe thought their spouse was dead or something like that. Like there's certain conditional things. You'll notice in a bunch of classic American noir for Hayes Code era, a lot of the crimes are centered around gambling. Murder was okay so long as it wasn't super explicit. And of course, you'll notice a lot of movies back then, like people would be getting shot and there's no blood or anything like that. Also nudity. Yeah. And it's interesting because this being the first movie that we're watching, it pushes the boundaries of everything you just said. This is a boundary-pushing movie. There, There is always some movies throughout the time, you know, there, and I think it would have had to do with, like, certain directors and what they sure. could pull off. If you were a big name, like, you know, we're going to be talking about guys like Howard Hawks, Billy Wilder today. They had a little bit of pull. They could get away with doing some stuff. But it was definitely a lot of, uh, there's always, that's what the thing is when you put up this bullshit standard that there's always something that just kind of contradicts it. And in a way, like there's a lot of unnecessary shit that causes maybe original stories to have to be overwritten or whatever. But at the same time, sometimes the parameters kind of lent itself to creative moments at the same time. Yeah. In which maybe you had to kind of envision or the the corruption or the the deaths or the this stuff like that and reading between the lines we're starting off strong pre-recorded uh because we're doing five drops a week for every weekday this month we had to pre-record a lot and for those who maybe are keeping up uh (laughs) good on (laughs) you one one detail that you can note is that the ones where i'm wearing this little brooch or whatever, this pen, those are pre-recorded episodes. <laughs> and she also says, yeah, see, at the yeah. end of those episodes, which was our sign-off. But maybe we'll come up with something different. Attributed to James Cagney, but I think it's actually Edward G. Robinson, a guy who stars in this movie. Yeah, and this month is called... The Left Hand Endeavor, a cl- an examination of classic film. We are coming off strong with the classic here. Every Monday will be Philip Marlowe Mondays, mm-hmm. in which we will be talking about an adaptation of a Raymond Chandler novel based upon the uh, the order that the novels themselves come out. So Monday we'll be talking about The Big Sleep with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. That'll be our first of our uh, Philip Marlowe Mondays. Raymond Chandler also had a hand in this one that we're writing. Uh, we, we're not writing it. <laughs> That we're discussing. He did co-write this with Billy Wilder. And this is probably the best example of uh, two people coming together in a very contentious relationship and yet pulling off something that is really good. Apparently, uh, Billy Wilder, another guy that he usually works with, uh, refused to work for, refused to work on this movie because it was so sordid. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, this is an adaptation of a James M. Cain novel, and I think they wanted to initially adapt uh, The Postman Rings Twice, which is uh, based on a different James M. Cain story, but because the codes had just went into full effect, they had to kind of put it on the back burner. It to was too hard. It out, yeah. And, um, but they would end up making that movie anyway a couple of years after this mm-hmm. movie we're talking about here. So Billy Wilder switched to a James M. Cain novella, Double Indemnity. But the screenplay is co-written by uh, Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler. 
who did not get along very well at all. Double Indemnity, by the way, it starts Fred McMurray Mm -hmm. in his most sordid role ever. He's (laughs) not the absent-minded professor, the shaggy dog. He's a a straight-up killer. And uh, also starring Barbara Stanwyck and Edward G. Robinson, mm-hmm. who, as I, uh, from what I read, his character is almost like a stand-in for Billy Wilder himself. Like he seemed to have characteristics of Billy. But Raymond Chandler, they got Raymond Chandler to help out with this. Like he was a big get. He was a popular writer at the time. Obviously, in, in print, helped set the tone for what film noir would be Absolutely. later on. But Raymond Chandler was an extreme alcoholic. And apparently when he initially wrote it, he wrote instructions for camera shots. <laughs> and Billy Wilder saw that and was like, no, we're no. not. He took the script and like wrote into it, split the writing with him. And I think Raymond Chandler was a little uh, upset about that. But a fun a fun fact, and it noted on Wikipedia, and I checked this a little bit, and I couldn't, and I couldn't find anything to contradict this because I thought this was very interesting. But 16 minutes into this movie, Fred McMurray's character is walking down the hall, I think of where his insurance building is, mm-hmm. and there's a man sitting on a bench reading like a pulp book. Yes. That man is Raymond Chandler, and you see him only for like a few seconds, if like if that. Yeah. And what's so interesting about this, and I actually watched like a Raymond Chandler documentary and hoping that I could back this up because surely a documentary would show footage of Raymond Chandler. As far as we can find, as far as we know, that's the only film footage of Raymond Chandler. That's is crazy. that brief second where he's reading on a bench outside the offices. In Double Indemnity. He did BBC interviews, radio stuff, plenty of obviously photographs of the guy. But as far as we've been able to find, that's the only film footage of Raymond Chandler that we know of. There could be some out there, but it's just like long lost and no one's identified it. And the fact that Raymond Chandler does appear in this movie for like a few seconds wasn't even spoken of for decades. It wasn't even until like around the, the 2000s where... People made note like, hey, that's Raymond Chandler. Yeah. And I think it also is, you know, the way we absorb movies going into the 80s, you know, it was becoming more accessible to be able to bring movies home with VHS and the mm-hmm. DVD later. Watch them over and over, over again. again. Yes. Because yes. back then you that's a big thing you like, went to yeah. the theater and a lot of the and one of the great things about those time when you don't have like other than TV, like direct home media to play movies whenever you want. Then theaters would kind of show a lot of movies over and over and over and over. Absolutely. But, uh, but yeah, in that format, uh, it took a long time until people realized, wait, that was fucking Raymond Chandler. And how come we don't have any other film footage of Raymond Chandler? It, it sort of lends itself to the idea that maybe he wanted to do sort of an Alfred Hitchcock thing where he appears for a second in his movies, but it only happened this one time. Yeah. It's hard to say what he wanted. I think it maybe it was more Billy's idea. Just okay. the fact that this man does not appear on a film footage that anyone can find kind of lends itself. Like, he didn't give that many interviews. He has, like, a BBC series of interviews. Interesting. But it wasn't like he popped into radio stations. I mean, there's photos of him, right? Of course, yeah. yeah. But he just wasn't a guy that strived to, like, be in front of the cameras. So I'm sure it was Billy Wilder's idea to be like, hey... Maybe he caught him on a good day this day because he was extreme alcoholic and he complained a lot and he got would complain about his lack of control. But it was like he was just extremely stubborn because he didn't know the balance between 
what he had to do and the balance of what he has to provide for this setting. This Like the idea that yeah. he's telling you how to use the camera. Exactly. Because he's a novelist. He creates the entire world. He pictures what it looks like every second. He's describing to you what you should be imagining. And so he, in writing the movie, he took it that step further. It's more like you would do in a play, maybe. And, and imagine you're being like Ray... We have storyboard artists and cinematographers that make these choices. Yeah. And he's on, like, his eighth Manhattan, and you're trying to explain this to him. Yeah. After this movie, <laughs> he would, he and Billy did not get along very well. And so he would kind of complain about how, oh, they didn't go, he didn't go to this awards after party or whatever. And Billy would be like, that's because you're under the fucking bar, like, over down here. Like, we all know where you are. Billy Wilder's follow-up film, uh, The Lost Weekend, which is based on a book, but also adapted, not from a Raymond Chandler book, about a man who's ex a writer who's very alcoholic. So I think uh, Billy uh, was inspired by a lot of his dealings with Raymond Chandler. Makes sense. And Fred McMurray, he's more of um around this time, he was doing a lot more like comedies, which were romantic comedies. A lot of comedies at this time had romantic angles, so... Like, 90% of comedies were romantic comedies if they weren't, like, targeted towards kids, right? Yeah, yeah. Comedies targeted towards kids. But Son he, of Flubber. He did a lot more family-oriented stuff, but for Fred McMurray, this is a different role because yeah. he plays an insurance salesman that gets all horned up when he meets the the wife. Yes. Uh, play, as played by Barbara Stanwyck. And this is the classic film noir feel where... At the beginning. The narration. It's the end. Yeah. And then they go, now I'm going to tell you how I did this or how I got here, what happened. But straight up at the beginning is like, I killed this man. Exactly. You Here's know what happened. You know who did the shit. Absolutely. There's not a second that you don't. I've been thinking about this a lot because he's telling this story. But we're watching the movie of what happened. But... He's so like quick and snappy and smart. You know, it's all he's an insurance salesman. Oh, I forgot that we needed to go into black and white. Snap your fingers. Oh, yeah. Now we're in black and white <laughs> for the rest of the month. Okay. Got it. But yeah, he's an insurance salesman. But he's this insurance salesman who walks into this rich woman's house. And this is a part where they push it. She's in a towel and says she's been sunbathing. This is like scandalous. Yeah. And basically, I don't know if maybe they thought sunbathing was better than saying, I just got out of a shower. Like maybe that's more sexy. Yeah. I don't know. But she truly is wearing a towel. And then she goes to change clothes to come talk to him. And she is flirty. But he's an, in I, listen, nothing against insurance salesmen, but he's just like a dude. Yeah, yeah. That just came in off the street and is trying to sell you something and immediately is like, and I'm going to get this girl. Like, he has so much. But he talks like fucking Philip Marlowe. He does. If he has Philip like Marlowe had, like, no honor. But to tell you the truth, Keys, I wasn't a whole lot interested in goldfish right then. Or on auto renewals or on Mr. Diedrichsen and his daughter, Lola. I was thinking about that dame upstairs and the way she had looked at me. And I wanted to see her again, close, without that silly staircase between us. I wasn't long, was I? Not at all, Mrs. Dietrichson. Hope I've got my face on straight. Perfect for my money. So, 
so, so he makes this connection with this woman, uh, Phyllis Dietrichson, is played by Barbara Stanwyck in a wig. Yeah, he shows up to renew their car insurance. But while they're talking, she says... Accident insurance? Accident insurance? Sure, Mr. Dietrichson. And he immediately calls her out and says, Listen, I'm not... I'm not down to fuck with you like this. Like, right, right. I'm not gonna but they're also sell just, you insurance so you can go kill your husband. But he's also just blatantly flirting. Like, oh, he wants her back. Yeah, like he's so fucking thirsty. There's a speed limit in this state, Mister Neff. Forty-five miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around ninety. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. But he's saying it in the most smoothest 1940 pulp novel way. And then it's this this like cool, cool guy of like, well, then I left her and then I went and got some food and then I went bowling. <laughs> Gotta shoot some lines to try to get my mind off the dame. Like it's all so... So how do they come back together to make this plot? They seem, they do really like each other. He goes back home and she shows up at his apartment. That's right. And this is the other part where they really, really push it and you have to read between the lines or another part. So she comes over and she basically says, don't want to kill him, but it'd be great if he was dead. And he's like, I'm going to do it with you because you have to do it right. Yeah, he's and- he's like in lust or in love. I mean, he got. you think he was in love? Or no. he was just like straight up? Lust. Baby batter backed up in his brain. Baby. Oh, yes. Come. It took me a second to baby better backed up in his brain. That's like a, that's like a, let's get ready for the show. Baby better backed up in his brain. Baby better backed up in his brain. So they decide we're going to do this together. They get smoochy. Well, well, they get smoochy, but then it cuts to this scene where they're lounging. She's, well, this is what I think is so interesting about it. He's lounging. And I did. He's laying back on the couch, smoking a cigarette. She's sitting on the other end of the couch, but she's like, doing one of the oh she's putting lipstick on she's refreshing her lipstick and then she stands up they're both fully clothed but the way that he's laying and the way she's doing her lipstick i turned to you and i was like did they just fuck yes they did and they did it wasn't but it's like there's nothing implied about that actually happening there's no bedroom there's no clothes off it's just him smoking a cigarette lounging and her putting her lipstick on and it's almost better if you're paying attention yes but it's not like explicitly yeah, like you they just straight up be like no she just had to put new lipstick on because they kissed and he likes to smoke and it's his house so infidelity is pushing the line of the existing haze exactly code. but they can't but they don't say expressly that they fuck so you can't say i mean she did cheat if you consider like making out with another man whilst plotting your husband's death as cheating mm-hmm. then yeah but sh- but that seems to be the line in these movies as we've watched so many of them. Kissing is okay, but don't take any of your clothes off. Now, there is a protagonist in this movie, but he's like third build. But he is the uh, the Edward G. Robinson. He's Edward G. Robinson is Barton Keys. He yeah. runs the insurance agency. And he's fucking fantastic. He's Edward, so good. He's the veteran actor here, right? And he... Now, he's, this guy played gangsters and shit. He's the yeah, see guy. And you can tell by his tone of voice. Yeah. We got him confused. We get it confused with James Cagney, who will show up at the end of the month. But, but yeah, he, he played a lot of mobsters. He played 
the heavy villain in many movies in the 30s and early 40s leading up to this point. But he actually is like a very sharp, very, um, he's like a detective in and of his own right. He, he figures out everything so well, but you know, he doesn't want to think his buddy who he, he, they genuinely say, I think it's Fred McMurray genuinely tells him like, I love you. Like he tells yeah, him he loves him. You're so darn conscientious. You're driving yourself crazy. You wouldn't even say today's Tuesday unless you looked at the calendar. Then you check to see if it was this year's or last year's calendar. Then you find out who printed the calendar and find out if their calendar checked with the World Almanac's calendar. Now that's enough from you, Walter. Now get out of here before I throw my desk at you. I love you too. Twice? Like they are, they have a bond. Lends it to the tragedy. Yeah, I can't remember what his name is in this, but he's Fred McMurray's boss. Uh, Barton Keyes. Barton. So, Mr. Keyes. Key, or just Keyes. Keyes. Yeah. yeah, that's right. He calls him Keyes all the time. So, yeah, Keyes, it's the kind of relationship where Keyes will just show up at his house because he wants to talk to him about something or will just walk into his office. But Keyes is his boss, and he, like you said, he is a detective because he's the guy who when they get an insurance claim, like a big one, like a death, that he looks at it and says, is this legit? Because at this time, and maybe, I mean, throughout history, right? But there's rules in place now to where if I took out an insurance claim on you, like even then you needed to sign it yourself. Time but if would have I, to pass. Yes, yeah. it would have to be like, I think it's a full year before if anything were to happen to you, then I could get money. But it would still depend on what happened to you. Like there are still like suicide clauses, things yeah. like that. So so that the, the money doesn't get paid out unless it's like a true accidental death or murder. So, murder from another person, not like if I murdered you. But then, at this time, you could sign the paper, die. And then get the money. And get like the money. The next week. There's no time frame. It, it, it raises suspicion, of course, but like... If you if everything is pulled off exactly right, then, you know, accidents do happen. Absolutely. But in this case, you know, they decide we're going to do this together. And he starts hatching this plan because he's often thought, which makes sense. He How would to, I do this? He has to be the guy with the plan. He's the insurance guy. But he gets fucking greedy. And that's where the double indemnity comes in. And I have to admit to you that I didn't know what that was. And so this movie starts and he explains it to her that, you know, the insurance policy is going to pay out 50,000. So we're going to kill your husband. But we have to kill your husband on a train. And the reason being is that. Listen, baby, there's a clause in every accident policy, a little thing called double indemnity. The insurance companies put in a sort of a come on for the customers. That means they pay double on certain accidents. The kind that almost never happen. Like, for instance, if a guy is killed on the train, they pay 100000 instead of 50000 I see. We're hitting it for the limit, baby. That's why it's got to be the train. It'll be the train, Walter, just the way you want it. Straight down the line. For some reason, if you die on a train, you get $100,000. Of course, they need the guy's signature mm-hmm. to, to, to set up. So they kind of do this cool thing where he goes over to the house and he's... Um, and he meets the husband and they also meet the daughter, Alola Dietrichson, uh, played by Gene Heather. And, uh, interesting little thing here. I think by 1960, Gene Heather's career was cut short because she was in a bad accident that lacerated her face. Oh no. And I don't know how badly scarred she got. 
uh, I didn't see any like post accident pictures sure. or anything, but she was not in movies anymore after that. The, the one who played the young daughter yeah. who, and she's much to her parents chagrin, her stepmother and father chagrin. He's running around with this kid named Nino Zachetti, who's like this little Italian boy. And, but he's like a cunt. Like he's a total asshole. Nino's an asshole, but so is her dad. Well, most everyone in this movie is, except for Keys. That's true. But even Keys, he works for an insurance company. He's like, he's like the best guy is the guy that runs an insurance but, company. Well, the guy that run runs it, the worst of all. So because they, even when Keys is like, it's an accident, let's pay the woman the money, the other guy still says no, but. So he gets him to sign the papers, but it's kind of clever how the scene plays out because you see that he's going to kind of look at the, he's going to flip up the page because what they really want him to sign is covered under another. And he's like lining up the signatures, like how you do. And when he goes to try to like look at the paper, he, he I forget what he says. Like he pays him some kind of compliment or something mm-hmm. like that, or says something that distracts him from like doing what he was going to do, which was review his own paperwork, which is what you should do. But he manages to distract them. Like he's a real, he's a real fast talking grifter type. And he and the wife are playing he's off each other very well. Phyllis and he are like, and and the man signs, and so they start. He thinks he's signing for the car insurance, right? But it's for this double indemnity life insurance. And in case you're wondering, the technical way they get around this is he does write the check for the life insurance because it's in his name and he signed for it. She writes a check from her personal account to cover the car insurance because she also is on the car insurance. And so that's how they make it look okay for the insurance company. Mm. On paper, it all looks completely legit and the checks came from the right people. After this scene, Fred McMurray's character, Walter Neff, he ends up like kind of forming a friendship with the daughter. She waits for him in his car and I thought she was going to try to hit on him. Yeah. But she just wants a ride to meet her boyfriend. Yeah, and so we kind of establish that they get to know each other personally and he knows more about what's going on in her private life than the father. Well, yeah, because she lies and says she's going to a friend's house and she immediately confides in him. So they, from the beginning, have this relationship where they have secrets Mm. with each other. So from then on, they can't really be going to each other's apartment a lot. So they pick up this grocery store. They go to the grocery store where they, that's where they plot all their shit. And they, they go to this grocery store. I thought maybe someone from the grocery would eyeball them or catch them together and somehow that would work itself out. But we go to the day in which it's supposed to happen and they finally convince him. Because he hurt his leg. He was supposed to go on the train up to like Palo Alto. But then he hurt his leg and it got delayed. And then so after a while, they're like, okay, he's ready to go to Palo Alto. But he's on crutches. Yeah. So Fred McMurray, Walter Neff, hides in the car while um, Phyllis Dietrichson is driving. They're going to the train station. And that's when uh, they get to, they park. And then you do, they don't show it. It's Hayes Code. But it's like right on Phyllis's face. What are you doing that for? What are you honking the horn for? And they kill him. And he has, before this, dressed in a suit that's the same color. And he has brought this, like, hat and yeah. he's brought like bandages to bandage up his leg. Yeah, so he's looking like someone on crutches, like 
like the person that they killed. So he goes on the train, but he's very careful not to be making extended eye contact. So the idea is that he gets on the end of the train and like making it appear like there's somebody that went to the end of the train that fell off. But there's a guy sitting there. And he does it very cleverly also because this is a place where he knows the train's not going to be going super fast. He's told her where to go. And he doesn't actually ask the guy to get his cigars. He's kind of freaking out a little bit because he's like, I got to get rid of this guy. And he's like, oh, I left my... I left my cigars and the man's like, oh, I'll go get them for you, friend. You got a busted leg or whatever, you know? And so he he makes it, the guy think it's his idea. So it's even like a little more vague. I mean, this Walter Neff, he's a canny dude, like a Raymond Chandler protagonist, but he's a bad guy. He jumps off the train, doesn't hurt himself at all. She flashes her lights. They go and pull the dead man's body out, put it on the train tracks, lay the crutches next to him and then they go get in the car and the car won't start oh that that suspense was there like i it was so tense you know what i thought was gonna happen because this is the first time we've seen this movie yeah very well regarded movie but this is the first time we saw it i thought she was setting him up since it was such his plot oh i thought and that him the whole doing time. that like this is when it's all gonna fall apart yeah. and she's gonna blame him for she's gonna be like he killed my husband and she's gonna get that fucking money something happened I knew but already. But she really does like him, right? Yeah. No, sort of. Not till the end, but Ooh. we'll get there. But she, something happened when she was starting the car when they were leaving the house that made me think, it was like the way it turned over where I was like, something's going to happen with this car. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I knew that the car was not going to start and I don't know why, but I do think maybe she had trouble starting it when she was leaving the house or something but yeah they finally start it they leave well he reaches over and then turn and it pulls over it's which like is a, also why was she because i was like don't fucking flood it like was she trying to flood the it's car? a it's a great bit of distracting tension there well and in retrospect once you know how things end up yeah. maybe she was trying to pull something but so after this the, the stuff has to process and go through and we get a lot of scenes at the company and they're like we can't see each other for a good long time yeah so at first they're vetting this and it's a strange case and keys of course is like well the guy who runs the joint is like it's got to be suicide but it doesn't add up but also if they say it's suicide they also don't have to pay her so he's not thinking that anyone killed him or that it's malicious but he thinks that he jumped off the train. So they think it's pretty cut and dry as it's set, as they set it up to be, but Keys can't stop thinking about it. He's like, why would someone sign up for this kind of insurance on a bum leg, but they don't file their bum leg for the accident insurance that they signed up That's for? That's the whole key. And then why would they like, and then die by falling off a slow moving train? And you know, and he literally explains exactly what happened. He's figured it out so specifically how, and he's dead on the money yep. when he's talking about the execution. But he, and he's, he, so of course he suspects her and one other person. But you know that if you're dealing with common, he's ignoring some aspect of common sense because of his love for his friend. Because how else would you set this up when you're talking about why doesn't he do this when he has this insurance? Mm-hmm. Like who else could be in on that? Who else but someone else who knows and understands the insurance industry and how it works? The the other thing that he does on the night where they commit the murder that is so clever is he very specifically makes moves so that people see him in particular places. He makes certain phone calls. 
And then even as he's leaving his house, and this is something you could never do now, he opens his telephone up and puts like a little piece of paper on top of the ringer on the phone so that if that paper falls off, he'll know someone called him because this is a little too early to have like a giant thing recording your, you don't have recorders. Like you don't have like a voicemail, I mean a. As the methodology is so meticulous that you almost interpret this movie as, as a, how to do this kind of thing at this time. That's how kind he, of movie. yeah, 100. He also, during this time at post death, while they're looking into all of it, he becomes friends with Lola even more. She comes to him because she has this memory and she feels like she's losing her mind, but she feels like she needs to tell him that when her mother died. So we find out that her mother passed away like six years ago. She was a teenager. And Phyllis was her mother's nurse. nurse. And it was just the three women in like a beach house on a vacation. And her mother was very sick woman, right? Why she needed a nurse. And she goes in, she hears like something and goes in to check on her mom in the middle of the night and sees her mom like shivering in the middle of the bed with all the windows open. And her mother had pneumonia. And her mother got pneumonia and her mother passed away. But in that moment, Phyllis showed up in the doorway and had this look on her face that scared Lola to death. Basically, it was like, this was not an accident. So so Walter is basically placating this daughter so that she doesn't talk a bunch of, like, a lot about this stuff. He's yeah. trying to be an emotional buffer for her so she's not like, wait a minute, and going to, like, explain all this to... Right. And the thing that's kind of the key that makes Lola really think that that she, that Lo, that Phyllis did this is that two days before her father dies, she sees Lola trying on a black hat with a veil in the mirror to see what she'll look like. And when they made eye contact, she made that same terrifying face. Like, I don't give a shit about you. Phyllis is a little careless for sure. She really is. Walter comes to find out that Phyllis and, uh, and Lola's boyfriend, Nino Zaschetti, have been hanging out like multiple nights. And he, and also, well, actually he finds out because, uh, Keys has been tracking what's going on. And Keys is the one that informs and Keys thinks that like, oh, it's obviously Nino should, Zachetti that was the other person yeah, that he was just knows in it's on this. another. He knows she had a guy help her and he knows it was a younger man. But there's also this like Nino, it implies that Nino and Phyllis are fucking here. Yeah, it does. And that's then what he thinks. He thinks they're fucking. So he packs up a gun and goes to see her. And she's sitting in the dark and we see her pull out a gun and stick it under the, under the cushions. The seat, yeah. And he goes over and he basically confronts her the whole thing. You know, you never cared about me. You were just trying to set me up. You know, this yeah. was just to, to do it. She does pull the gun on him at a point. But she explains to him that she's been trying to set up Nino or something. She's been fucking with him. Like, it was somehow yeah. she's trying to she's trying to turn him on Lola. I don't know why. That part didn't actually make sense. It seemed like they could have had Nino actually take the fall here. Totally. But there was this moment where he ends up shooting her. Well, she shoots him. He's by a window and she, she shoots calls him. him in the shoulder. And he turns yeah. around and he takes a shot right here. But then he shoots her. And right before that is when he's like, you never cared about me. And she says, you know, I didn't. Until a minute ago. When I couldn't fire that second shot. 
You know, there was also a part where I thought Walter Neff was going to wait for Nino to come in and shoot him and set that up like, oh, he killed her. But he actually intercepts Nino outside of the house as he's walking up and tells her, he's like, look, Lola's not mad at you. She loves you. And he tells her, tells him where she lives. Don't listen to what Phyllis said to you about her. Or the phone number. You need yeah. to leave here and go, go be with her. So he kind of has these regrets, but that's when we get, he's got the bullet hole in him. And that's when he makes his way to the insurance office in the wee hours of the morning and tells the whole story that he's been telling throughout the whole movie in the dictaphone. And it's like 4.30 a.m. and Keys shows up. Well, apparently at one point he's talking and then he, the camera pans and you see that Keys has been standing in the doorway at like wee morning hours. Seems you leaked a little blood on the way in here. Yeah. Wouldn't be surprised. Wanted to straighten you out in that Dieterson case. Sure, I gather. How long have you been standing there? Long enough. Kind of a crazy story with a crazy twist to it. One you didn't quite figure out. Well, you can't figure them all, Walter. You know, Walter, he gets up to try to go away, but Keys knows, Keys is really bummed as fuck, obviously, but he knows he has to turn him in. And he's got a whole confession on the dictaphone, and Walter is almost trying to convince him, like, what if he just got rid of this thing and we'll be fine? And he starts to walk. He and, says he's going to Mexico. And Keys is like, you're not even going to make it to the elevator. And sure enough, Walter collapses as I, he's walking down the building halls. And this is where we get the second I love you. You know why you couldn't figure this one, Keys? I'll tell you. Because the guy you were looking for was too close. Right across the desk from you. Closer than that, Walter. I love you, too. Crouch down next to him. And Walter does this thing the whole time where he's always the one that has everyone's matches. He's always lighting everyone's cigarettes. And he um, pops them on his thumb, right? Yeah. And... In this case, he he pulls out this cigarette and it's it's like bent and bloody cigarette because it's been in his like coat pocket. Yeah. And Keys actually lights his cigarette and Neff says to him, "I love you too." Yeah. And it's I don't know if it exactly the happens in that order, but like it's that. so sweet. Also, when Walter's first talking, he's kind of got like a little hole. It's tiny. And then as it goes back to him, like. Continuing the narration, it's bloodier and bloodier. Like, it's not over the top, but it's more blood than you usually see in a lot of these Hayes Code era Absolutely. Usually you don't see blood at all. Yeah. This that, shouldn't be a wound you die from. And that was uh, one of the more most sordid movies under the Hayes Code era. And the movie that helped define the tone for a lot of movies that came after it. Double Indemnity by Billy Wilder from 1944. This is one of those movies that's almost, and it's going to be no different here, like universally acclaimed by those who see it. And uh, But if you're not a big classic film noir person, you might be 
pleasantly surprised at this movie. Uh, it's highly recommended. This might be the kind of movie. This is also one of those movies that's like, if you wanted to get someone into classic film noir, this is one of the movies you could, uh, I would say more so than the one we're going to be talking about this Monday, uh, because that one's like very stylish, but convoluted as shit. But this one, the movie is, the story is just told very well with great detail with actors, uh, especially Fred McMurray playing a role, not like he would ever play again for the rest of his career. We're going to talk about a lot of movies this month. I actually think if someone had never watched any of this and they wanted to get into it, I'd probably recommend The Killing. The Killing's a great heist. It's more of a heist. But if you like it, then I could see, you know. And then after you watch like five of these, be like, okay, now watch Kiss Me Deadly. Yeah, you got to watch a bunch Now you got to watch that. In a lonely place. There's some real good movies coming, you guys. Oh, it'll, yeah. So yeah. good. Some great shit. But uh, yeah, so that's Double Indemnity. Uh, one through five each, best out of ten. It's a five for me. I actually love this movie. Mm-hmm. And, and it's as good as they've always said it was. 4.25. All right. 4.25. Wow. Well, it's still asked here. Yeah. I didn't love it as much as you. I recognize how good it is, but... There was something about him that I didn't buy. You didn't like the way he said baby? Oh, God, I hated the way he said baby. So check the screen out here on the S-tiers. Thanks to me, it's an S-tier movie. (laughs) It would have been an easy A-plus at the very least. But Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity. This is the second Billy Wilder movie to hit the S-tier list. The first being Sunset Boulevard. and mm. But I don't think he's the first one to hit the S tier twice. I believe that is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson was the first one with oh, yeah. Phantom Thread and There Will Be Blood. Yep. Check the links in the show notes for other places to find us. Um, I've been playing uh, on Twitch at wee hours in the morning, if you're into that sort of thing. Fallout New Vegas, which has it's a post-apocalyptic dystopian game. But it has classic noir influences as well. Those two things go surprisingly well together. We've seen it a ton of times those, in years. Those are the Fallout games, essentially. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you know, if you if you happen to catch me on there and you want to chat me up, it's a it's very. I'm just kind of getting started with it, but you can find me there. But like, subscribe, comments, corrections. What's your favorite Billy Wilder movie? I would imagine um, this one would be up there, right? Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard is great. Okay, so that's all. Supposing we end this show. Supposing we do. (laughs) 